Hey guys, welcome to Prometheus Decoded. I wanted to tell you a bit about why we decided to create this pod. Prometheus Decoded is a place to uncover the stories behind business leaders who have stepped up to shape the future of business. They are change agents, innovators, and visionaries. On Prometheus Decoded, you'll hear from inspirational investors who share professional and personal stories about navigating the financial and business world with lessons and best practices to help you drive transformational change. We started Prometheus Studios to help break down big ideas into stories everyone can understand. The goal is better access to information and education in all areas of business and technology. We want people to learn about these experts and what makes them tick, how they got to where they are, and what lessons they have learned along the way, not only becoming better business leaders, but also better humans, creating a more positive positive impact in the world around them. I'm Ryan Pallotta, and this is Prometheus Decoded. I am so excited for you to hear our conversation with Marcellus Wiley. Every word that comes out of his mouth is inspiring and motivating. I always feel like I am better in life and business after listening to his thoughts. An inspiring figure, Marcellus never let his environment affect his mindset and goals. I loved the analogy he used when he told me how we often don't read our own instruction manuals. Growing up in the rough neighborhood of Compton, he often did not know how his parents were going to make ends meet, but he did not let his circumstances determine his path. With a focus on education, he went on to Columbia University and against all odds was drafted by the Buffalo Bills, playing in the NFL for 10 years. Today, he is a Fox sports commentator, avid investor, and author of his memoir, Never Shut Up, which will inspire you to be relentless in your pursuits. Now, I hope you enjoy this conversation and are inspired by his story as I was. Marcellus, appreciate you joining us. It's taken us a little while to get you on here. You're a busy guy, so appreciate you taking the time to jump on and start this conversation with us. Man, I appreciate it, and I blame the kids already. Let me just start off by saying it's not on me. It's on these four children that I have at home because of COVID. My fourth, my grad school <laughs> daughter from Columbia is home as well. Uh, but yeah, busy times, obviously, with the holidays. But man, better late than never. I'm excited to do this. Yeah, man, I'm really excited. You're probably going to be one of our most inspiring uh, guests we've had on so far. And I hope the kids run in there. You, uh, yeah. you can have the two-year-old run in there for uh, a cameo. Yeah. It'd be great. Uh, the last time we spoke was at uh, Mr. Chow's actually with, with Mike's dinners. And uh, you had some really amazing things to say and got really excited about having this conversation with you. Yeah, and I'm so still hungry. I just kind of want to start. Mr. Chow's, uh, Sorry, go ahead. Mr. Chow's leaves things to be desired in your stomach, even though it tastes amazing going down uh, those bite sides. How many times do we make that table uh, pasta or d'oeuvres? <laughs> Let's just say that. It was fun times. We had a lot of martinis that night, but uh, I was surprised. It, it was really easy to get you out to Mr. Chow's, but getting you on a podcast <laughs> is very difficult. I'm big for a reason. You already know. I'm big for a reason. <laughs> yeah. Mike's like, hey, you want dinner at Mr. Chow's and you show up, no problem. Um, <laughs> I've been super inspired by your story and everything that you've done so far, especially your book, which is incredible. Uh, I just want to start like early on in life, like very first memories. You grew up in Compton. Do you mind telling us a little bit about what that was like? Yeah, um, my first, my early memories were of a very loving family that uh, I guess surrounded, if not smothered us with so much love and so much pride that I never took notice of what was going on outside of the gates, outside of our yard, um, in the streets, in my surroundings. So I had really no understanding of neighborhood as much as I did of family. Um, and I think that really helped me understand what identity was to my family and identity became to me in terms of priorities and knowing who I was. 
or as my grandmother early on instilled in me, it's important to know who you are, but more important to know who you're not. And I think <laughs> with my surroundings, uh, with all the adversity in my neighborhood, as I grew to understand it, the gangs, the drugs, the poverty, the ills that were surrounding us, I knew that I was not going to fall into those traps. Uh, but more importantly, the greatest trap that I saw outside of our family surroundings was the low ambition. I think that people had just got beaten up to a point where uh, they started to look at their dreams as fantasies instead of things that they could realize. And I was a guy who always wanted to make my dreams a reality. So I didn't have lofty dreams. Uh, I think my only goal growing up was just to be successful. And to me, that wasn't monetary. To me, that wasn't based on status. It wasn't based mm -hmm. on what people were thinking of me. It simply was just to elevate my family's surroundings. And it was simply for me to go out there and say, whatever I designed to do in my life, I want to be able to achieve that. So I think my earliest memories were really those attributes that were being given by my grandmother, my mother, my father, my sister, all in the home, just telling us how blessed we were and how those blessings can come in different forms and fashion. That's really interesting. I love how your grandmother basically said that you kind of make your own community and your own surroundings and you, you seemed like your family became your neighborhood. Yeah, definitely. I mean, our own little enclave. Uh, I was a kid that was allowed to go over to someone's home, but I had to become home before the streetlights came on or I couldn't spend the night or, you know, all those get togethers. Uh, we were handpicking which ones I would go to. So, you know, looking back, uh, I think my family was very selective and very intent in terms of what they wanted from me. And I think that came from a lot of the painful experiences that they had with their own kids or in their own surroundings. Uh, my grandmother had six kids. Uh, four, oh, wow. four of them were either murdered or committed suicide. And the other two, uh, thankfully, are still alive. But uh, you look at the situation, it, it kind of hardens you to a point where you got to make different choices. Uh, you can't just mm -hmm. always live uh, in your own mental utopia. You start to make these real-life choices based on the real-life circumstances and cards you're dealt. So. My family was very intent because uh, losing uncles and losing family members to the violence, to the streets, to our surroundings, and making sure that we were at least protected as much as possible. Do you think that maybe people are set up to fail a little bit there with lack of mentorship or lack, because you said that their goals become fantasies because they just don't see a way out of that. Um, you it seems like you and your work today are trying to be an inspirational figure to kind of show them that there is a way out of that cycle. That is over there. Yeah, um, I, I, I'm a firm believer in your inner power. And I'm a firm believer if you really want to find the way out, you got to look within. And my family, thankfully, was able to look within. And it doesn't mean necessarily that you're going to be the one that starts and finishes the race. I look at it in terms of goals, achievement, in terms of what the family structure unit looks like as more of a relay team rather than just individual sprinters. And I think a lot of times you get discouraged when you think you got to run the race by yourself. And in my family, uh, my mother was a straight A student. Uh, she was very wow. talented, physically gifted, six foot one, 
slim. Wow. Like my mother was set up to succeed in this world in terms of showing uh, her attributes. But let's be real. My mother also had two kids by the age of 19 and living wow. in Compton, California with two kids at the age of 19, all of a sudden you have changed the, the stats on you. You have changed the statistics in terms of uh, what your success rate may look like. And instead of my mother uh, really trying to carry us in tow and still achieve all of her dreams, she turned her focus inward on us. And my father did as well. So I think them being a part of the relay was to make sure that their children uh, were best equipped for the world at hand. And what did that do for our relay? Uh, my mother, she was a tremendous mother. My father, a great father, very, very intent and more importantly, present. Uh, what did I do for my sister? Kept her away from all of those shortcomings that were mm -hmm. lurking right outside. And what did it do for me? It gave me a sense of pride and responsibility that since everyone was turning their focus inward, that I had to do something on the outside. So basically, I put my cape on, man. I looked at the few talents mm -hmm. I had and I said, let, let Superman fly a little bit. Let's do it for the family. Were there any points in your youth where you kind of maybe felt distracted or like it wasn't going to happen or it was a fantasy or that you did, you know, maybe go down the wrong path? Oh man, it was, I tell you what the common denominator every time that occurred and it happened several times, if not more than that. Oh, wow. It was when I started to look around, when I started to compare, when I started to peek into the other lane to see what the other kids were doing whether it was me being focused on Pop Warner football and being focused on running track and being focused on my studies. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden there's that one afternoon you come home and you see your homeboy in the front of his house riding his bike. Then you see your other homeboy going in the house to play mm -hmm. Nintendo all day. And then you see your other homeboy just smiling on the porch, chilling. And then you're like, man, this sacrifice, is it going to pay off? These things that I'm invested in, are they going to pay off? And as soon as you start to peek in the other lane, that's when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. And for me, I, yeah. came, I came up, I, I call them Wiley-isms, but basically it's any mantra, <laughs> any adage, anything that just inspires me or inspires others. I make up half of them and half of them I borrow from others, plagiarism. Uh, but basically a Wiley-ism <laughs> that I came up with in that moment was don't compare, prepare. And I, I always remind myself of that when you get into those moments where you start to add it up. And more importantly, you start to look at the scoreboard. And at the scoreboard, mm -hmm. when you start to stare at it, you don't just see your score. It's in comparison to someone else. And many times when you're trying to cook it up, when you're in the lab, when you're investing in yourself, the score is not in your favor. And all the times growing mm. up for me, when I started to peek in the other lane or look at that scoreboard, instead of preparing and comparing, that's when I felt like I was out of sort when I was distracted. Amazing. I love that. And we, we often start wanting things that we see others doing. So you start getting a little distracted. And would you say that you had a mentor that pulled you back into that? Was it a father, mother, grandmother you mentioned? Yeah, man, it really was a collective in terms of uh, where I got my inspiration from. And I think it started with my mother. Um, yeah, it's crazy how you try not to rank your kids and you try not to rank your parents, but who doesn't? <laughs> you know what I mean? But You're the it, favorite, it, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Like my nickname was Teddy Bear. Um, I was a mama's <laughs> boy, brother. I mean, 
talking about looking at mama every single day in every single way with the deepest of love and would do anything for her to the point where some of my sacrifices, some of my focus, some of my dedication was simply me borrowing from my mother in terms of paying her back. So I knew she invested in me. So I was like, mom, I'm gonna borrow from you so I can pay you back at the same time. So I did a lot of things for her, just frankly and thankfully, because it kept me focused. It kept me on track. It starts with her. And then my father, <clears throat> I look at my father in terms of him just being there and always being that steady presence in my life. Uh, I, I look at them together as this collective that if you go to a grocery store, you go to a bookstore and you get a coloring book. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother and my father were that coloring book. My dad is the outline. So when you buy the coloring book, you open it, it looks like something, but it's not super special in terms of like jumping off the page. There's no color, there's no crayons, there's nothing that gives it full life. It's just, yeah. okay, you see the outline. Mm -hmm. That's my dad, he's very principle-based. Do this, don't do this, right, wrong. And basically that was my father. Stay within the lines that my dad always used to say and used to demonstrate. My mother mm -hmm. though, she, were, she was the crayons. Uh, my mother, she was what gave the page life, what gave the picture life. My mother made it all come to life and made it vibrant and gave it energy. And that's who I became in terms of balance. I became a guy who was very principle-based uh, to the point where a lot of people used to tease me, used to call me a nerd, used to call me a punk, used to, oh, you're oh, wow, good really? at two-shoe. Yeah, because you're doing the right things instead of just like always caught up in just being a distraction or being a guy who wants that type of negative attention. I didn't because I wasn't, I wasn't brought up that way. I wasn't coached that way. I wasn't being reinforced with that type of behavior. So I think that the combination of my parents and then my sister, you add into it, the fact that she gave me security. She made me feel special. Uh, my sister was a tremendous mentor for me and my grandmother she gave me the fearlessness. She gave me the ability to dare to become great at whatever I challenged myself to do. Um, and I think if you really wanted to look at it, that was my Voltron. Those were the forces I used to combine to try to create a different experience for me and my family. And during this time, what would you say that you were most drawn to? Like, were you interested in business early on, like mostly sports? You were getting into football at a young age. I know education seemed very important to you and you excelled academically. But what, were there, was there something driving you that you like, this is what I see myself doing in the future? Yeah, man. You know, the thing that was most, my greatest passion really was helping others. Like my greatest passion was to become a teacher. I really wanted to be a wow. teacher. I really wanted to grab fork in the road students, especially, and help them go the right direction. Like that was my greatest passion. Uh, just being around someone else who had a dream and helped them get over the hump to achievement. That was my greatest mm -hmm. passion. That and music, as you can see with these turntables right here. <laughs> uh, those were my greatest passions. Now, I was best at sports. <laughs> so it was weird how sports got introduced to my greatest passion list because yeah. I was so damn good at it at a young age. Um, I was a young kid. You're probably the biggest kid in school. Yeah, man. Um, tallest, not widest. There were some guys who were tall <laughs> and had some bulk. I was just a tall, skinny kid. 
But more importantly, I was a kid who who could run. Um, and, you know, speed kills in any sport. So no matter mm-hmm. what it was, you, you line me up against, I'm six years old, you put me against a 10-year-old, I'm going to smoke him too. Uh, it got to the point where, you know, cats used to go get their cousins, go get their uncles, who, sometimes their daddies. And I was like, all right, whoever it is, I'm going to race them and more than likely beat them. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I had early success in track and field. I had early success just in street racing. And I'm not talking about way any cars or fast and furious, just me out front, mm-hmm. light pole to light pole, I'm going to take your dollar from you. That's, that's where I really got my start. So then sports all of a sudden becomes a greater passion than I think I initially desired. Uh, I got into football yeah. just because I wanted the camaraderie. I wanted the brotherhood. I grew up with two sisters and I didn't have any brothers and all the male figures were either mm-hmm. my father or uncles who were doing the wrong things. And it just became a situation where I wanted someone in my peer group that, you know, I could call my pseudo brother. So football, track and field, sports became a part of my passion list. But at first it was just to help others. Yeah, it seems like your surroundings really created this massive sense of empathy that made you want to help others, you know, growing up in this conflicted environment with sisters and a mother and grandmother who were so influential on you. Did you see things going on in your community that you're like, I want to change this or help this you know i know that you're very passionate about gun violence um at that age were you thinking about doing any of these things man uh, not really i think my focus and my priority was to help you so then it would change it you know i didn't go about it in like some aggregate or some macro sense i looked at every individual and i said man if i could help you and if you can help me then we know we're going to help it. Um, or mm-hmm. I, I just looked at the community like I look at a team or an organization where a lot of times we get caught up in some of the language of saying, oh, the culture is bad or the culture is good. But when you really distill that, all you're saying is that the players, the individual players are buying into something positive or negative and the individual players are doing well on the field or not doing well on the field. So it's not mm-hmm. like the walls bleed ignorance. It's not like the, the walls of an organization bleed a bad culture. It's just the individuals that inhabit that same organization, are they doing well or not? And I just looked at community, excuse me, I looked at community the same way. I looked at it like there's nothing inherently bad about Compton. There's nothing inherently bad about South Central LA. I thought that the real issues were there were just too many people who had either got detoured from their ultimate desires and dreams and goals um, and were living through greater frustrations than they desired, or people that Mm -hmm. were just so close to the edge in terms of making it or not. And I really looked at everyone in that lens in terms of empathy. I said, man, I can see how it's affecting my family. Like, you know, when you're at the kitchen table, but you're not eating, you got pieces of paper out and it's covering the entire table and one ink pen just drawing numbers up and down, trying to make the bills get paid and oh, trying wow. to make the ends meet. Uh, and then not just that moment. And then that's a moment that could have huge impact on you, especially when you're young. You're like, it seems like every other day, all I see is my dad or mom trying to play accountant, trying to make these ends meet. But more importantly was how I saw that affect behavior. 
how I saw when the ends weren't meeting, all of a sudden uh, the emotional availability wasn't there or you were that much quicker mm-hmm. to snap or all of a sudden you didn't want to go out as much or you didn't want to be seen as much. And I guess one of my greater attributes as a youngster was I was very mindful. I was always stopping and staring. I wasn't the kid mm-hmm. that was always jumping into anything first. Uh, to this point now, my boys just clown and laugh me, laugh at me all the time. They're like, dog, it is nearly impossible to get me to move from my surroundings. It's impossible to get me to just, hey, let's just go on this boys trip. <laughs> let's go on this golf trip. I was like, nah, I could golf down the street. Nah, I could golf with my kids. Nah, I already yeah. golfed before. So I'm kind of in that men- mental space still. But in all seriousness, I used to just look at situations and I would say, what is contributing to this outcome? more so than looking at the outcome and then try to go to the contributors. It's a really interesting way of putting it and also how you could apply that to businesses today that you run or invest in and how people organize culture in their businesses. How did you cope as like such a young, uh, you know, child in that kind of type of environment, seeing your parents struggle to make ends meet? Did you have coping strategies? Did you have like outlets? Did you turn to like television? What did you turn to? Yeah, so many different ways. Um, I think the first thing that really would help me release some of the the issues or the steam that I would obviously gather from just the experience of being a normal kid, let alone a kid in that environment, let alone a kid with lofty aspirations. And obviously I had to be patient and I was a late bloomer in terms of materializing all of my success as I went on a windy road uh, to the NFL and to broadcasting. <laughs> but I, I think the first thing for me was obviously my family outlet and uh, talking to them and sometimes watching them and not speaking and watching what they would live out in their world and how I didn't want to follow that same path. So uh, as they say in sociology, there was a there was a difference of others. Um I was going to be different than other people because I saw how it turned out for them. So what they say, uh, a fool learns from his own mistake and mistakes and a wise man learns from others. Uh, I try to use some of my wisdom at that age to learn from others. Beyond that, I used to watch television. I was uh, a faithful watcher mm-hmm. of different strokes. And the reason I love <laughs> different strokes, little Arnold, little Willis, what you talking about Willis? Um, Abraham, all of them, damn, Mr. Drummond, all of them, um, (laughs) was the fact that they had a staircase in their kitchen. And that was the Mm -hmm. craziest thing to me. I looked at that show like, wow, they are so rich that when they go to eat, they don't even have to go back to the living room, to the family room to go upstairs. They just go from the kitchen table upstairs. And that used to trip me out. And I, I tell you why that used to trip me out is because you're looking at the dynamic and you're looking at some kids from Harlem and all of a sudden they, they get adopted into a rich family. And mm-hmm. in that, all of a sudden, you start to see some of the challenges that they mm-hmm. were going through from the two different worlds, two different realities. But more importantly, how they had to accept who they were no matter how it looked. And how it looked, they had a white father, they had a white sister, how it looked. Well, yeah, everyone's saying you're from Harlem, but hey, I got a stairwell in my kitchen. So obviously I'm not in that same situation. 
And it just looked like a family that was all over the place, but always came together. So the displacement of those kids really resonated with me in terms of I'm right now in these circumstances, in this situation, but mentally I'm living in a world where I actually have a stairwell in my kitchen. I'm actually, <laughs> I'm going to work so hard that one day I'm going to have a stairwell somewhere in my house. I didn't say kitchen. I ain't made it that far yet. Uh, but the point <laughs> being is uh, that was like a real life example of a dream being realized in so many different ways. But at the same time, it wasn't a fantasy. It wasn't perfect. They had issues every single episode. And that show more than any gave me inspiration, but it also hit home. Yeah, I did a lot of the same growing up. It's interesting. You, you, it's almost like you used television as an educational tool to teach you about how other families act and behave and maybe things that you are looking for, trying to understand. And it kind of educated you as a window into other worlds that you weren't aware of at the time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you got to think about the power of media. Um, and I know mm -hmm. everyone talks about that in, in phrasing, but it's one of the very few places where you actually leave your surroundings, you leave your box, you leave your comfort zone. And it's mm -hmm. like a meeting ground for everyone to kind of go somewhere and learn some values and learn some attributes and learn how to get up the mountain a different way than the way that you designed it. So I always look at media in terms of the power that they possess and the power we possess as I'm a part of the media. But more importantly, you can look at sports in the same respect. Um, and that's why I love playing sports as a youngster is because it took me out of my surroundings. It took me away from my sisters and just my mother and father. And all of a sudden now I have a coach who's now in that position of authority and leadership. And all of a sudden, my brothers are not my sisters who are picking on me and teasing me, but still loving me. Uh, they're doing it in a different way, but we're doing it individually for one common goal. And I used to just always look at it and I would do some comparisons and I would always contrast it to reality and just see where it fit. And I, I used to always come back to like, wow, when I turn on that television, it's like I get to go into different worlds but safely stay in my own world. And that's the same thing with sports. It allows me mentally, especially, not so much physically. I think with fancy, <laughs> the physical aspects, but mentally to play football, you got to go to outer space and come back and still be here for kickoff. It was crazy. Yeah, it seems like one of your greatest skill sets was your skill as an observer that was able to turn all these things that you were seeing around you from the television to the sports and turn it into tangible lessons that you could apply into your life and into sport and into just being able to watch these people and how they performed and acted and lessons you learned from them. Yeah, man, I, I appreciate that. Um, I, I humbly say, and my, my godmother told me this, she says, boy, you sure talk a lot, but you listen more, <laughs> right? So yeah. I, I talk a ton, but I listen more than I talk. And yeah, I think that's really what has helped me more so than anything. It's just, you know, it's okay to listen to people, as my coach once told me. He said, listen to people, Marcel, still telling themselves. And I look at a lot of situations, whether it's, uh, excuse me again, I got to feed the fish. Okay. So um, <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of situations, you know, you get to the NFL, you get to any new endeavor, whatever it may be. 
you're outside your comfort zone. You're like, who do I trust? Uh, where do I go? Uh, where's my sense of community? And I remember my coach, Coach James, told me, he said, man, just listen to people. They'll tell on themselves. And it's the same thing with any situation, any proposal. If you're not so eager to just jump into it, if you're not blindly motivated just because she's beautiful, oh, I'm not listening to her anymore. I just got to go on a date with her. If you're not looking at that yeah. proposal just because, God, I got to get I got to get in connection with this investor and I got to be a part of this leadership team. And if you just look at any situation for what it is, instead of that rooting interest first, it'll tell on itself. It will tell you exactly what its motivation is and was. So I, I make sure that I keep that in mind and at heart when I see anything or experience any new endeavor. Yeah, just quieting the noise and listening. Where did that bring you next until your career in football? So you played in high school, and then how did your time after that go? Yeah, high school was weird, man. Uh, high school was challenging for me because I came into high school with a reputation. Like, I got recruited to go to high school, and this is back in the 80s where uh, I know that is like common stay now. Everybody's like, yeah, okay, you were special. Everyone gets recruited to go to high school. That's worth a damn now. But um, back in those days, it was a little more taboo. and. Um, I remember being a kid at Pop Warner, so the level before high school, and eating my chili cheese Fritos and, you know, sitting there with your jersey on after a game, four touchdowns or something like that crazy. <laughs> and grown men just coming up to me, and I'm like 13 years old, and oh, wow. they're pointing at me, and they're talking about me like I'm not even there, and they're like, yo, this is the baddest little running back. This is the baddest little dude. Boy, Wiley, I tell you, boy, Wiley – and I'm sitting there just eating my chili <laughs> cheese Fritos like, yeah, all right, I, I hear y'all, but what y'all talking about? Is and that the I, position you were playing at the time? You were a running back? Yeah, I was a running back. So I was tall, skinny, and fast. So uh, wide receiver wasn't the position of choice back then. It was running back. So, um, you know, going to high school, it was eye-opening. One, all of the talent from different areas was going to congregate in high school. It wasn't just the neighborhood. It was neighborhoods all meeting mm -hmm. on the same practice and playing field. But more importantly, uh, I had some knee issues. I had Osgood Slaughters. And for those who know what that is, basically, your knee is on fire, but it's also setting you up for a growth spurt. And I was a guy that was going to go through a growth spurt at the time, but I had to wait to go through the growing pains. So all of a sudden, I'm highly recruited, highly talented, I go to high school, and there was just a little something off my fastball, let's just say that. And, <laughs> and coaches looking at me like, uh, well, where'd that Wally with them chili cheese Fritos go? You know, and I'm looking around like, yeah, I'm, I'm asking myself the same damn question, what's going on? But I'm also a ninth grader who's going home to ice his knees every single day. So oh, at, wow. at that time, some amazing things happened. Some blessings in disguise. One, mm -hmm. I really got my team of supporters down to a minimum because in part, they just all jumped off the bandwagon. They all jumped off of the tootin' Marcellus Wiley horn. And Was I, it like your speed that was decreasing? Like it was just the pain was too much? What was that like for you? All the above plus some. Um, I just couldn't run as fast. I couldn't run pain-free. Uh, it compromised my agility. Like literally it took... 30, 40% of the athlete I was and just took them off the board. And more importantly, yeah. didn't allow me during puberty 
to grow at the rate that everyone else was. So two things were happening. One, I'm not getting better, but two, I'm actually in pain, so I'm getting worse. Meanwhile, kids who didn't even work out or kids who just were just getting older because they were going through puberty were just passing me by. And it was eye-opening, it was discouraging, and it made me go inward in terms of finding my strength and really making it through those lean years. Now, did you cope? How'd you cope with that mentally, emotionally? That must have been pretty hard on you. As a, that's pretty young, grade nine. Yeah, ninth grade, tenth grade. I started to come out of it a little bit in eleventh grade. Um, how did I cope? Uh, one thing I didn't do was I wasn't the cool kid. I wasn't seeking the girls' attention. I wasn't seeking the next party or social function or get together. Uh, I really didn't express myself outwardly as much as my personality really desired, in part because I knew I had to go back to the lab and do some work. Um, It wasn't like a depression of sort. It was like, you got work to do at home. Basically, you can't go out and play until you do your chores. And I knew I had some chores to do in terms of fixing my body. And I remember the first thing I did was uh, get a, a weight set from my uncle. He had a, he, my uncle was a, a former bodybuilder and he had all these concrete weights. Yeah, concrete weights, right? And they were all cracked open and stuff. Mm-hmm. It say 25 pounds on it. It really was only like five pounds, but they still would get <laughs> on the bar, right? And I remember borrowing, taking, having his weight <laughs> system and working out. And meanwhile, Everyone else was kind of looking at their scoreboard, seeing that they were up or wherever they were and cashing in their chips like, oh, I'm the man or I'm getting these letters from this school or I'm getting recruited to go here. Oh, I'm going to the league. I'm going to the NFL. And I used to hear all of that. And I wasn't even mad at them, but I just thought it was a little premature because they didn't know that I was going upstairs with this bad knee, working out, trying to grind, trying to not only catch up to them mentally, but more importantly, catch up to who I thought I should have been. So I'm on Mm -hmm. a grind in the ninth grade. And I was forced (laughs) to be on that grind because I wasn't who I thought I was. I wasn't who I thought I should have been. And you look up with all of that work being put in. uh, It started to manifest, I think, junior, senior year. But in terms of coping mechanisms, there were a lot of lonely nights watching HBO, watching Cinemax, uh, once again, Mm -hmm. teleporting to different worlds because of television, reading, writing. I used to write a lot of raps or or poems, which were really nothing but slow Mm -hmm. raps for me because I was like, all right, I'm not a poet, but I'm going to write this rap real slow and it's going to sound like a poem. And um, I just did a lot of work on myself. And I didn't know how blessed that experience was going to make me going forward in terms of knowing the difference between right and wrong, up and down, and what I needed to do versus what I was going to have to borrow from those around me. And it just gave me, it gave me a premise. It gave me a grounding. It gave me an understanding of where my satellite and where my reception was strongest, and it was going inward. So I used to just cope by band, basically hanging with the family, staying at the crib and uh, making sure that the fact that I didn't have all of the results and rewards at that moment, it couldn't undermine my confidence or my belief in myself. 
all that work on yourself at such a young age probably really paid off tenfold for how you behave today and how you see yourself today and knowing how to, you know, work on yourself today and how important that is. Yeah, man, it, it really helps you know how to do bad things and not get caught. Uh, now, let me stop. Um, <laughs> that's part of it, too, man. You got to scratch that lottery ticket and always win. Um, I'm no You got to hear more about the bad things. Oh, yeah, I'll talk it. Um, <laughs> since they're behind me now, I can talk about them without the connection and temptation. But um, seriously, like, man, I, I think the first thing you got to know, I remember I was in, uh, I think it was... Barbados. Yeah. And this cab driver, man, it's so crazy. You're in out the country and you get a cab. This is early, early 2000s or something. And I remember this cab driver, as soon as I get in, he's like, hey, big man. And I'm like, oh, I got the cabbie that want to talk. And I'm like, all right, I ain't mad. I'm out the country. Let's have some fun. But man, I just jumped in this cab because I'm already going through it, hung over, having fun. We just kicking it back here. And here he go want to just talk. And it's crazy. For some reason, I wasn't just trying to give him the the head nod listening. Like, uh-huh. I actually was really trying to hear what he was going to say. And he broke some stuff down. This dude was, I don't know what he was up to, but I think his other job was really inspiring others because he told me one thing. He said, you know what, man? Most people in this world, they don't even read their manual. And I was like, what you talking about? And he was like... <laughs> He's like, you know, you go to the store, you get a new toy, whatever it may be. You just put the batteries in and start playing with it, start going, just riding it. And he's like, most people don't read their manual. Most people just get up and go. They don't know who they are. Wow. They don't know their, their real instructions. They don't know what they should be doing. And I'm like, all right, he got me. He got me. I'm listening. <laughs> and then he said, he said, you ever have a friend who has the same thing as you? It could be a phone. It could be a toy. It could be whatever. Remember this early 2000s, so we ain't cell phone happy. People are like, what, a phone? What you mean? Like, yeah, that was special back then. And he's like, and, and they would have it, and they're playing with it, and you're playing with it, and six months later, you look at them, and they're doing something, they go, whoop, 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 and then they're on it, and you're like, how you do that? He was like, oh, I read the manual. And he's like, boom. He's like, that's how you got to be in life with yourself. Read your manual. So then one wow. day you look up, and you're not seeing someone else do something you want to do, and you're like, how you do that? And they're simply like, I read my manual. He's like, read your manual. And it really stuck with me, man. I wish I knew who dude was. I wish Facebook and Instagram was out then because I'm certain we would have stayed in contact. But he broke that down to me. So I'm just a guy that I guess is patient enough to read the manual before I jump into it. And so many times we don't. And so many times I've been burned when I didn't. Um, and that's just a reminder. That guy in that cab, in another country in Barbados always sticks out of my head. Amazing. It's almost like you're meant to be in that, that, that Uber and that taxi and that, in that car at that moment and take that lesson from him. Uh, it seems like you got a lot more out of that ride, uh, for sure than you realized. Uh, could you tell me about a time where you didn't read your manual and you felt like you should have, man, Oh, where we start. Oh, whew. I mean, like in high school, not reading my manual was like, I'm a junior in high school and literally I'm getting recruited. Uh, I, I don't know which way is up. I'm only looking at football factories. Basically I was on the yellow brick road and being mesmerized like anyone else would in high school. 
But I wasn't reading my manual. I was just reading the script that was given to me. It's a big difference. And, you know, I was just going to be typical, I think. I just really thought I was going to just be what every other kid would have been in my situation instead of being unique to my situation because my situation was unique. So it's junior year and I'm not reading the manual and, you know, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm just going to go to football factory X or Y and I'm not making decisions that really add up to someone who's trying to set himself up and set his life up like I truly desired. Um, so one time I got caught stealing and that means I stole a lot of times and finally got caught because you don't get caught the first time you steal. And if so, wow. boy, you got bad luck. Um, so uh, <laughs> what were you I, I, yeah, I, I used to steal T-shirts. I used to steal clothing. Um, and like my friends were doing it. And at first, you know, it's like anything, man. You're like, man, I ain't doing that. But this is how the power of the company you keep and how if you want to move someone, you just whisper to them. The old saying, one of the Wileyisms is, if you want to move many, whisper to one. And um, I remember my boys just whispering, oh, man, and, you know, I'm about to go jack this. I'm about to go jack this. I was like, stealing? I was like, hell no. But what started to happen was two things. He come back looking fresher, and two, he never got in trouble. And I was like, what's the stealing about again? And all of a sudden, once that happens, boom, <laughs> got me, right? You're not getting caught, and you're looking fresh, and we are in high school and we're not going to get caught like that. We ain't carjacking. You know, you start to justify it. Yeah. You start to say, I ain't doing all that. But what you're doing is already bad enough. So I got caught stealing. And I remember when my principal, Sister Cheryl, they, the police caught me stealing, you know, hitting cameras all through the store, blah, blah, blah. They take me in the back. And the first thing they sit me down, they're like, yep, we know you were stealing. Can you tell us what you were stealing and why you were stealing? Now, I think that question wasn't for a real answer, but just a test to see what kind of character I had. Was I the kid to fess up mm -hmm. or was I going to be the kid to take him around the corner and back in my lies and BS? And admittedly, man, I was singing like a canary and I wasn't telling it on anyone but myself. I was like, yeah, I did this. Oh, wow. And I walked in here and did that and did that. And immediately in that moment, the police instead of taking me in, called my principal. And they said, if your principal can vouch for you because you seem like a kid we should believe, you seem like a kid that actually has better character and judgment than what we just saw on that camera. If your principal can vouch for you, we got something. And I remember they called Sister Cheryl and she showed up and she literally looked them in their eyes and my eyes as well and said, this was a mistake. And this is not who Marcellus is. And when she said that to them, one big, big sign of relief, huge sigh of relief. Mm. More than that, it really hit home like, yo, people counting on you, bro. And people are counting on you to the point where they will vouch for you. Even in your lowest yeah. moment, they will vouch for you. So that just let me know that I had teammates. And it's weird, just like I told you earlier, how I didn't want to let my mom down and how I wanted to do things for her, it activated that part of me that, okay, Marcellus, you disappointed yourself, but more importantly, you're starting to disappoint others and you know you're not built like that. So that really energized me to do the right things. That was just one of the instances where 
I started to understand <laughs> that, hey, man, it's a little bit bigger than you, bro. So make sure you're more responsible than that. Yeah, it's a few of, a few of those instances start making you get back on track and shift your course back in the way of the direction that you were heading. And especially, like you said, you were doing all this for your mom and seeing her disappointment must have been heartbreaking for you. Man, seeing her disappointment, seeing her belt, seeing her meds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is before the child protection services was fully engaged. Uh, yeah, it was hell to pay because of that. And um, more importantly, it's just disappointing when people think of you up here and then you look at them again and whether they're looking at you differently or not, you just feel mm -hmm. less than in those moments. And I hated that feeling. I hated that feeling of shame. Uh, something that my therapist talks to me about now where shame is the most haunting emotion you can have. No matter what you go through in this world, many things you can overcome. Yeah. But he says shame is everlasting because no matter what you do, you're always in your own head playing that image out, playing that movie out and always thinking that they're thinking the same thing, even if they're not. So the shame that I had in those moments, man, certainly was helping me self-correct. Yeah, it's your perception of yourself that you start questioning in those moments, I guess. And wh where did where did you go after that with football? So you started, did you end up going and playing in college? Yeah, I ended up going to Columbia, making uh, a great choice for me. Um, it wasn't the best choice to others. Uh, I just remember it. Why that? Because Columbia is known for its academics, its academic reputation, being a top university in the world and not known for its football pursuits and not known to really produce NFL prospects and not known for being even great on the football field, especially at that time. So that was the reputation and people are looking at me like, well, there goes your chances of making the league. And I remember hearing people just immediately discount or discard me in terms of my opportunity to go to the pros. Well, what was it that made you choose Columbia then? Oh man. I chose Columbia simply to just be assumed intelligent, just for people not even to make me have to go through the entire process. Hello, how are you? What's your name? Okay, where'd you go to school? What's your GPA? Uh, let's talk. And I, I was like, dude, if you go to a great school, people just skip those steps and just automatically assume you are smart, you are intelligent. Just kind of mm -hmm. like if you sitting there right now at a bus stop or whatever it may be, and you see somebody at the red light in the Rolls Royce, you're assuming they got something going on well in their life, right? Yeah. You're assuming they got $5, right? You're not assuming like, oh, they broke. You're not assuming, oh man, I wonder if they're doing, you know, you just kind of automatically assume the best. And I just want- Do you think you had some shame around being smart? Do you think you had that you, you just didn't want to talk about it, you just wanted to go and do it, and that there was like this idea of like trying to hide it? Huh, great question. Um, for me, I knew that perception was going to be reality. I don't believe that now that perception is reality, but at the time I really bought into like, okay, there are stats out there about guys from my circumstance. There are people telling me that being from Compton, being from South Central, uh, that you're handicapped. Uh, at the time I used to just hear of and know of so many horror stories in terms of just being who I was and how that was going to play out. You know, at the time they were feeding us stats. Mm -hmm. If you make it to your 18th birthday, consider yourself lucky. And, you know, and I, you know, unfortunately knew a lot of people that had lost their life or lost their way of living 
based on the streets. So I told myself I wanted everyone on the outside who didn't want to dive deeper into who I was in intelligence, in character. I wanted them to assume mm-hmm. the best. I wanted them to think of me in the best way. Just like if you're a great football player, you're thinking, hey, I need to go to Alabama. One, I want them to know that, hey, I'm one of the best out there. But two, I want to sharpen my knife against other sharp knives. And I wanted Mm -hmm. to go into a situation, an academic environment, where I could sharpen my knife against the sharpest of minds. So I think it was really a blessing and it was seriously something that gave me the best of both worlds. I still was allowed to play football. It wasn't at Alabama level. It wasn't at the highest level of college football. Weren't 100,000 people in my game games, but it still was football. And it more mm-hmm. importantly still was football that could get you to the NFL if you were good enough. But also I got the beautiful safety net and no higher safety net in the world of playing college football, but having an academic support system and reputation that was that tremendous. So I looked at it as a blessing of both worlds, but a lot of people looked at me like I had sacrificed one world for the other. Well, you still made it to the NFL. How did that road go? How did your time during college and leading into the NFL go? I mean, it's the same thing. It was almost like the same roller coaster that occurred in high school, like highly touted, mm-hmm. did well. Um, I think the only thing that changed was I continued to get better, but the attention to what I was doing wasn't always there. And it certainly came later than early in terms of me being a prospect. So my frustration in high school was, damn, I'm not as good as I should be to show the world. Mm -hmm. In college, my frustration was, man, I'm good enough, I think but the world's not paying attention. So how can I make the world pay attention? So in a weird way, it was like the next phase of a maze that I was going through in my pursuits of life uh, that will pay dividends. So uh, I think in those moments, in those years of college, I realized that I couldn't make excuses. I had the excuses built in. I had the reasons built in. Oh, you went to Columbia. That's why you didn't make it. Like I could have easily came back home and said that and being a school teacher and that was life. Uh, but I knew because I was there, I knew because it was greater than just what people were perceiving. I knew the reality that if I didn't make it from Columbia, it was because I wasn't good enough to make it from Columbia. They, yeah. They'd had prospects before in the past in terms of you go all the way back to Lou Gehrig and you can go all the way to George Stark, who was on the Washington football team in the 80s as one of the Hogs offensive linemen. They had guys who were in the NFL before. The Ivy League had produced guys in the NFL before. But I will admit there was a drought, maybe a Mm -hmm. decade or so drought before I was drafted in 97 of guys really making it to the league and making a splash. But I knew, hey, if one of them could make it, why can't I? So I can't use that as an excuse. Just like in the neighborhood, I couldn't use oh, man, you from the hood or whatever it may be, you're not going to make it. Like, that's the outside perception. Oh, you from the hood, you're disadvantaged, you're not going to make it. And look at all this stuff around you. It's okay. Just lay on this mattress we give you of excuses, <laughs> and it's fine. But I knew from growing no, up. No, you think like, your own destiny, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I knew, like, I, some of the most troubling moments for me was the frustration I had with my friends and my peers when, 
they or I would buy into the BS. You know, guys would be like, man, look at our neighborhood. Look at this, man. We ain't even got what everybody else got. And I would have to be the one at times to pick up their spirits, but like, dog, we got enough. We ain't got everything, but we got enough. Meanwhile, on the walk, which we're having this conversation, we just passed the library. Meanwhile, on the walk, where we're having this kind of conversation, we just passed the YMCA. And literally, they're complaining about we don't have enough to get where we need to go. And I'm like, that was a tool. Mm -hmm. That was a tool, et cetera, et cetera. So then I started to realize, and sometimes the shoe was on the other foot. I was the guy sitting there moping around. My guys were like, come on, big dog. You know, if you're going to make it, it's on you. If it's to be, it's up to me. So I used to borrow that mindset and just make sure that I didn't buy into the circumstances. I didn't buy into the conditions. I bought into my character and made sure I showed that to the world. Yeah. You never wanted to play that victim syndrome mentality. You just, you were never the victim in your situation. You're a product of your, your own mind. That's the thing. And I know that's a victim versus victor is like a hashtag on Twitter now. And everyone, (laughs) it seems like our world is so polarized by victims or victors. And I'm just like, look, uh, hashtags aside, every problem that is presented to you, the solution is there as well. And whether you believe in a higher being, you believe in God, you believe in the universe, you just believe in yourself, whatever it may be, you believe in a power that is as great as you are, or you believe in a greater power. Whatever that looks like to you, whatever you want to say that is, there is tremendous opportunity in every situation that is presented to you, no matter what it looks like. And obviously in business, people know about that. You talk about those who take distress assets and mergers mm-hmm. and acquisitions, et cetera. You know about that world as well. But even in your own world, when there's a distressed circumstance, a distressed asset and situation, huge potential for growth in that moment. And I'm just a guy who no matter what the label is, I'm a fight because if you bring the problem, I'm about to bring the solution or die trying. And I think if you have that inner response to whatever comes at you from the outside, you'll find yourself victorious in more situations than not. Remembering that you're not going to win them all. Like in my sport, only the 72 Dolphins won them all. And everybody else takes a L. <laughs> and guess what? Mm-hmm. I get it. Like I look at my schedule in life I'm never sitting here saying I have to pursue perfection. No, all I got to do is display my greatness. And my greatness is my greatness. Your greatness is your greatness. But as that taxi cab driver said before, if you don't read your manual, you don't even know the level of greatness you possess. And more importantly, where to go and find it and activate it. Wow. Yeah. And during this time when you were going through all these different, you know, roller coasters of events playing football at Columbia, did you start thinking about what you might want to do if you didn't play football and like you're, you're studying at Columbia and what were you majoring in? Yeah, I was a sociology major, psychology minor. Cause I really wanted to be a school teacher. Like I literally just wanted to go back home, LA unified, be a school teacher, <laughs> a Dean, maybe even a principal, but something in education come back home nine to five, it helped the kids out, get that fulfillment and um, call it a day. Now, at the same time, running in lane two is a guy who continues to get bigger, faster, stronger, and more determined in the sports and my football pursuits. So 
those are the two competing interests that actually weren't really in competition. But those are the two things I had going in my tool belt. And I was just a guy like, look, obviously, if both of these things can come to life, I'm going to choose football. You get there faster. Mm -hmm. You get a huge head start in life. Who wouldn't want to be in the NFL, et cetera, et cetera. But I wasn't a guy that looked at being a school teacher as something that was lesser. I wasn't looking at it like, oh, plan B. I was like, no, that's the other plan. Yeah. That's plan 1A, 1B, whatever <laughs> you want to say. But they were equally satisfying to me in terms of achievement. And I end up going to the NFL and playing 10 years in the NFL and, and making wow. a mark. Uh, what was that moment like when you, what was that moment getting drafted actually like for you though? You know, you've gone through such a tumultuous life up until that point and you, you, you know, so much of it was just being strong in the and, you know, being able to push through those moments. What was that feeling when you finally got drafted after, you know, people said that you would never get drafted from Columbia? Uh, what was that moment like? Yeah, man. The first emotion I, I truly remember and felt was you did it and you really can do anything. Like it was so empowering to hear my name. I didn't care when I heard my name. First pick overall. Second round's pretty good. Second round, pretty good. Respect. <laughs> I didn't look at the scoreboard. I didn't see where everybody else was and where I wasn't. I, I was so appreciative of being picked when I was picked. But I think the real emotion that I felt was the power that comes from being the little kid that used to lay on his twin bed next to his sister's twin bed in our one and three quarter bedroom apartment that is actually smaller, it feels like, than the studio I'm in right now in my home. Like literally throwing the football up at the popcorn ceiling and the crumbs hitting me before the ball would come <laughs> back down. And being that kid, man, you remember those days? And being <laughs> that kid that just, that kid is now in the NFL. Like, all of those guys you saw on television and all the times you went to Foot Locker and you saw that guy's jersey, et cetera, like, all of that is now a reality for me. Like, the dream aspect of it is behind me now. It's mm -hmm. a reality. And I just felt an overwhelming sense of power. And then that power started to turn into different things. Like, I told you so. And then it was like, yeah, now you want to holler at me, don't you, girl? And, then, you know, I started getting into my own <laughs> ego and started to get into my pride and all that. But really, the, the conquering emotion was the power that came from making my dreams a reality. And then first entry as a you know young guy in the NFL, what was that like? And what, what position were you playing? Defensive end. Uh, there was hell to pay on every play <laughs> in the trenches, as they call it. Um, here I go with a – I had a running back's mindset. So I used mm -hmm. to love to run, and, you know, that's what helped me get drafted as well. I was big, fast, but I could run. Fast. And I love to run. Big, fast, strong, but I could run. Like, I didn't have a, a lineman's mentality like, okay, the ball was way on the other side of the field. I'm running after it because I'm like, I'm a running back. We have mm -hmm. to run the whole damn game. So that was my <laughs> mindset. And at the same time, I had a rude awakening because football is different based on location. Like, a quarterback knows football from a different physical sense than – a wide receiver. 
And he knows football mm-hmm. different than a running back. And he knows football different than a lineman. And I never knew the hell that you had to pay as being a lineman until I became a lineman. So you got respect for him. You're like, yeah, big dog. Yeah, big dog. Until you wanted the big dogs and realized that every single play, you're like trying to get into the club. But there's like six security guards that are like bigger than a wall that they're standing in front of, right? And they're like, dog, you ain't getting in this club. And you're like, no, 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 you don't understand. My credit card's still in there. I got to go get my credit. And they're like, you ain't getting in the club. And you're like, well, I got to get in the club. And every play, huh? you got to go get your credit card. <laughs> and that's me like going from a different vantage point of luxury being the running back. Look, everybody trying to hit me when I got the ball, but I'm also trying to get away from them. And most of the time, it's not the same violent collision as when you're an offense alignment or defense alignment. There are two Rams budding every single play 60, mm-hmm. 70 times a game. So a little bit of a rude wow. awakening playing that position, but uh, I was built for it. So I had to go out there and get it. Well, it seems like a lot of your experience early on in football was a good metaphor for your life and how you approached thinking about life and, you know, approached with the way you approach football as well. How did, did a lot of that start coming to you with that early of an age or then that you wanted to inspire other people or was it just like playing football as good as you can at that age? No, man, it, it, it comes full circle. As you know, as sports and football is a microcosm of life. You hear that a lot. But in reality, I borrowed a lot of things from my real world experience and I would let them display themselves in football, in part switching positions and playing defensive end, like the toughness that so I you weren't playing defensive end in university. Yeah. So my last two years, my first two years running back, kick returner, skinny little dude still out there thinking <laughs> that I was going to be a running back in the league. And then my coach was looking at me like, eh, I don't know, bro, like. You're pretty big right now, and it's working in Ivy League, but I don't know if it's going to work in V League. So uh, that, as well as us recruiting a a real talent at the running back position, made me realize, okay, that's the running back right there, this guy we just recruited. And me, I'm a big dude playing running back, so let me go over there where the defensive linemen are. But, um, yeah, you just borrow from your life, man. I borrowed my toughness from – all the adversity I've been through and I borrowed from, hey, nothing's too daunting. Nothing can destroy me. I really believed in my inner power and my inner my inner being. And I just knew that I can conquer any problems that came my way. So uh, I was a guy that just went out there and, and made the smooth transition. And more importantly, just gave it my all. And it didn't mean that I always had amazing results or I wasn't a Hall of Famer or anything of that nature. But just like as I grew up, success to me wasn't based on what monetary number I accomplished. It wasn't based on oh, what people were saying about you or what accolades, et cetera. It really was based on did I give it my all and did I make my dreams a reality? So I had a different way of looking at my tenure and my legacy than others, but it was self-satisfying and it certainly helped my family as well. And how did you look at, you know, your life inside of football, especially like all of a sudden you've got like, you know, a good paycheck coming in that you've never experienced before finances in football. You often hear a lot of times a lot of football players will burn through their cash really quickly and then they're out of the league and they have no idea what they're doing anymore. Were you starting to take an interest in business and how to manage your money at this time? Did the league help you guys at all with trying to figure this stuff out? Yeah, man. Uh, For me, uh, it's crazy. I, I keep it here. Look at this. 
I mean, you can zoom in on it now because it's old as hell. But basically, <laughs> it's my uh, bank statement from my first deposit of my first installment of my signing bonus in 1997 oh, wow. when I was drafted. And what was that? And, and the reason I keep it, yeah, man, it says uh, 11.27 in the morning. So I woke up early, kind of chilled around the crib <laughs> a little bit before I gave him that check. Uh, 57th and Crenshaw, Bank of America. I walked in to the teller and, and it says I had $100 in there. And then, of course, they oh. got me for a, a, a banking fee, so $1.50. Um, but then <laughs> I deposited and I got a balance of $99,898.49. Wow. So I went from being a hundred air to a guy who had a hundred thousand dollars in his bank. And that was just an installment. And I don't say that because of the numbers, cause I ain't bragging. I'm just saying that because to walk into a bank with a hundred dollars to your name, and then to walk out of that bank and now you got commas behind those same numbers. I remember the bank teller who I used to see every week, you know, 20 bucks in, 10 bucks out, 50 bucks in, 40 bucks out, et cetera. Yeah. And this time I knew I was going to give her a check that if she looked at it and wasn't just going through the motions, she was going to be like, what is going on? And I remember giving her is the this check. Fake? Yeah, right. Exactly. Is this fake? <laughs> and I remember giving her the check and then kind of just, looking and peeking at her and taking a step back. And she was like, hey, Marcel, how you doing? How you doing, baby? Okay, all right. Ah! And start screaming. Ah! I was like, <laughs> now, mind you now, like, hey, 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 like, you know, I was a $100 dude walking in here, and some of these dudes don't want to see me walking out any different. So be careful. Yeah. Right, right. Like, you're in the bank screaming, I got money. I don't know if that's going to play right now where we at. So it was hilarious. <laughs> Um, watching her reaction, but she calling everybody, look, Marcel, Marcel made it, he did it, and all this stuff. And it's so crazy that that also told me something. I already was drafted. Like, you don't get your money as soon as they say, and with the 52nd pick, we pick Marcellus. Uh, what's your wire information? We're going to send you the check right now. Yeah. It, it takes weeks. It takes months, right? She's seen yeah. me already as a Buffalo Bill, already drafted. But it just told me something when her reaction wasn't so great for, oh, you made it to the NFL or wow. I mean, she was happy for me. She lost mm -hmm. her mind when she saw that money. And that was something yeah. that I, I, I took and put in the back of my head. Like, watch how people act, not just because of the accomplishment, but because of the accolade or because of the award and reward. And I started to see how yeah. people started acting different, not just because, wow, you made it. You actually worked for something and it came to life. They were just looking at, oh, what do I get from it? Or what do you get from it to give to me in terms of that process? And that kind of shifted how I would look at people and how they would respond, how they were responding to me and my newfound success. Yeah, I think also what's so inspiring, though, about that story is that there's a lot of people out there that are working so hard and they're just they haven't seen their fortunes turn yet. And you just never know when like on a dime, your fortunes can turn and change and you can go from, you know, worrying about that next bill, getting, taking 20 bucks out from the bank here and there. And then, you know, with putting in the right amount of work, you know, quickly, you might not, you didn't even realize that you're going to get a check for a hundred grand and go deposit that and not have to worry as much about money anymore. Yeah, exactly, man. Like they say, your overnight success took forever. And it's like so crazy. Mm -hmm. Like people looking at me like, man, like, it's so funny, like so many people were just responding in so many ways. And I remember hearing, you know, B 
Biggie and Puffy, more money, more problems. I was like, I don't know what the hell y'all talking about. I ain't got no money. I got a gang of problems. It can't be more money, more problems. You know, you hear stuff like that and you're looking around, you're like, dog, this money will fix everything. And it, it certainly will help. Um, and then you get the money and then you're like, okay, I still got to go through the same things, but maybe I'm approaching them differently. And then you start to say, okay, the money has changed me. That's good. You know, I'm not supposed to do exactly mm -hmm. the same things. Damn it, I got some money now. Let me do something different. But what's going against that, what's really jumping out to you, is not so much how much you need to change because of the money you have. It's how so many others change because of the money that you possess. So now mm -hmm. you're not the kid that could just go to grandma's house and lay on the floor and take a nap. You the kid that now they're looking at it like, oh, is, is Teddy Bear asleep? Is he asleep? Oh, okay, wake when he wake up, let him know that I'm here. And you're like, damn, yeah. okay. And then when you wake up, they gonna let you know they there. Hey, what's up, man? How you doing? You know what I'm saying? All good? Oh, man. Man, let me talk to you for a second. And when someone is already talking to you and they say, let me talk to you for a second, just say how much, bro. Just say what it do, what you need. Yeah, what you need. <laughs> but um, in all seriousness, man, everyone expressed their happiness in so many different ways. Some of it was positive and some of it wasn't, but it's a lot to put mm -hmm. on a young man at that age, but you just got to go through it and get through it. Well, I love that you're finally able to start paying your mom back. Like you said, you wanted to do, you started being, probably being able to help out a lot more and took a lot of stress off of her shoulders. Damn burger. Mama was proud. I mean, they call me that dude and they call her that mama. Cause that mama was pumped. She was like, ah! and that was like the greatest joy. That was the greatest joy in terms of what gift I was able to give someone that wasn't a purchase. It was just, a presence, um, the present I gave her of like, mama, I know people ridiculed you. I know people counted you out. You had two kids at the age of 19. People say it wasn't going to be you. You weren't going to be anything. And she wore that. And to just see her be able to dust that off and realize that all of her hard work had paid off in terms of what she created, realized its goals and its dreams because of her. Yeah, that was, mm -hmm. that was the moment where I was like, it's all worth it, man. And then you start to realize that all these dislocated fingers and out of place ligaments and all of the issues that come from the limbs not feeling so good and so well-oiled, worth it, man. You would do it all over again. Well, then when did you start thinking about life after football? Woo, if, you're, if you're smart, you're thinking about it while you're living in football, <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, what about you? <laughs> man, I was thinking about the next and the now. So life after football to me, once again, wasn't based on necessarily what I was going to do, but that I was going to do something. Um, mm -hmm. I'm a big dreamer, but I'm also the guy who was raised by a father who told me, how long is a marathon? I remember he asked me, he said, how long is a marathon? I was overwhelmed sometime young growing up. And he was like, how long is a marathon? I was like, 26.2 miles, you know? And he's like, okay, take one step. How long is a marathon now? And I was like, 26.19. And he's like, exactly. Like, it's okay. You don't know how long. You don't know where it's going. 
you all know if it's too daunting, if the journey is endless, whatever it may look like, mm -hmm. just overwhelming. He said, just take the next step. So for me, mentally, the next step was, one, knowing where I was in terms of being an NFL football player. I was a player rep for nine of the 10 years. But more importantly, knowing that whatever I was gaining from my football experience, the network of individuals I was surrounded by, the access I had to maximize that. You look around in mm -hmm. the NFL, man, like you're the center of attention. You're the star everywhere you go. Even if you're not the star on your team, you would go to lunches and dinners and banquets and things in the city with city of commerce, uh, whatever it may be, and all these great institutions all gathering, spending thousands of dollars per table just to be around you. And many guys would just sit there and blow it off because they're like, oh, here we go again. Another chicken dinner where someone's going to ask me, how's football? And, you know, you got to just go through <laughs> two hours of that. But I, I used to flip it on his head. And in part because I went to Columbia and I realized how important those meetings were. I was sitting at the table with a CEO. I was sitting at the table with a VP. I was sitting at the table with an executive who was interested in me. So I took those business cards. I kept those relationships. I made sure that I was growing my network because I was the star at that table. I was one of the stars on that team. And no matter if you're high or low on the totem pole, you got to respect that and know what that means. So I just really took all that was coming my way and I made sure that I maximized it and I didn't take it for granted. So I was thinking about life after football when I was still living and playing football. Yeah. It's like, it's like you took that, you found that lesson in that taxi cab. You never know what dinner you're going to find a lesson from one of those CEOs that you're talking to. Yeah. Or that you never know where you're going to find your life's lessons. Yeah, man. Cause people always get caught up in just capital, like money, but human capital, man, like people, relationships, uh, mm -hmm. situations, things that can help you skip the line or more importantly, know the terrain in front of you. Uh, I, I always knew that that was a part of the conversation as well. The human capital that I received from my principal when they caught me stealing, like that's human capital. Mm -hmm. You couldn't pay your way out of that situation, but the human capital allowed me to go forward without the strike on my record. Um, situations where you're at a banquet, situations where you're around others and that human capital, like you're in the NFL and you're trying to transition to the next endeavor. And all of a sudden you're the retired player that needs to say goodbye because the rookie is coming in and everyone's saying hello to him. What do you do in those moments? What relationships do you stand on? What bridges have you established to connect you to the real world, to connect you to your next opportunity and career possibly? So to me, it all comes together if you just make it happen. And I made sure I stayed in the moment and made it happen. What lesson do you think you learned during that your time in football that you probably lean on most today? Is there something that's that you kind of like took from those 10 years that kind of resonates still with you today? Man, um, I have a placard that I'll put up once I start to decorate this room uh, that says <laughs> life is a game. Football is serious. Um, and why does that stick out to me is because it's so hard to play football we already know physically how, how tough and brutal the sport mm -hmm. can be, um, the physicality of it. Even if you can't walk, we expect you to run. Even if you're not healthy, we expect you to play well. 
et cetera. That's physically mm-hmm. and mentally as well. You got to draw on your inner power and you got to get resources from within just to get yourself motivated to go against another man for three hours. Like football is literally a game of skill, but it's a greater game of will. It's like, it's like human beings, human chess pieces on a field trying to move each other against their will. Like that doesn't come just because you're strong. That doesn't come just because you've been in the weight room longer. That doesn't come just because, mm-hmm. hey, I got a great play design. It also comes because I got to make this happen. I got to manifest this. I got to will this to existence. And things have to work well together. Things have to be in coordination. You got to be a part of a greater unit. And I just use all of those attributes plus more and just put those into the real world. And I think the the secret sauce for a former player is to know that that football field is even more challenging than this real world. But if you don't display those attributes from football with confidence in the real world, oh, it won't come together. It won't come to manifest. So I, I know a lot of football players that are confident, if not cocky in their football endeavors and their football abilities but then those same abilities that can translate into the real world, all of a sudden they lose that confidence. And then all of a sudden, if you lose the confidence, then you're going to lose your will. And then once again, you'll lose out to someone, not only with a greater skill, but a greater will. So I just use football as kind of like my prep sheet, my prep experience for all the things I'm going to see in this real world. And I kind of really quietly between the ears sit there and know that anything that's presented to me in this real world, chances are it's not going to be as grueling and as difficult as what Mm -hmm. I went through on that football field. So was commentary on football the first thing you did right after you finished? Or what was the first thing that you kind of went into after? Was it broadcasting? Uh, Yeah, first and only thing, man. Uh, I could have been a school teacher and I could have been a commentator. Once again, the satisfaction was going to be equal. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I knew that uh, being around the sport and – still being in that same lane of passion with football, but now I don't have to get hit. Now I don't have to have a surgery. Now I don't have to go yeah. through the rigors, even though I did have vocal cord surgery, which is crazy. Like that's how injury prone I am as a broadcaster. I got to have vocal cord surgery. <laughs> <laughs> like, damn, I'm on oh, IR wow, for really? talking. Yeah, I was on IR for talking for like two months. But um, yeah, I love, I love translating the game, man. I love infusing real world experiences and life experiences with the game that we all see and not the game that we all could play at the highest level. So I love broadcasting because it's just a translation. Um, And it's from my perspective and it's not, I don't have to be objectively correct. I'm just telling you my slice and my lens in which I see this game and hopefully it resonates with others and we take it from there. Yeah, it's a little bit like your book title. You're just not holding anything back there. With uh, did, Were you afraid at all when you started this, when you started broadcasting? You'd never done anything like that before. It was like jumping right into it. You know, millions of people listening to everything you had to say. No, I mean, being from where I'm from and then playing football at the highest level and getting my butt knocked around time and time again and also doing some of the knocking. Mm-hmm. Um, you put me in a room with a camera and like, a couple of producers and a cameraman. Let's go. Like the millions of people are not in this room. So one, I'm actually, yeah, yeah I'm actually better in crowds than I am one-on-one. Like one-on-one, I'm like, yeah, what else you thinking about? What, you ain't saying that. You're too quiet. Mm-hmm. But when it's a crowd, everybody always around you and I always feel that energy and I feed off of it. But 
the millions and millions of people that are watching you for your mistakes or for the praise that you may get, they're all distant. Like all I see is a camera mm-hmm. and all I see is action and all I see is the red <laughs> light. And that's all I need to see. Um, once again, that's the most important thing. Just like in this world, everything comes your way and you're playing asteroids. Like I got to deal with this. I got to deal with that. I got to go there. I got to do that. And then really the answer to all of these questions and problems is inward, that solution. Mm-hmm. So it's really simple. Mm-hmm. Just like this camera is really simple. It can be complicated. It could be complex. It can go to the world, but it also starts right here at home with me. So I love to simplify things so I don't get overwhelmed and I don't think anything's too daunting. Yeah. It's important to look inward and keep searching inward, especially as you keep going down these different paths in your career. Is there something that you've taken from broadcasting that, you know, was the net in the next chapter of your life that is kind of another lesson that you learned here, like your, your ability. Now you're finding you have an outlet, you have a way to talk to people and, you know, what are you taking from broadcasting that you love right now? Um, the fact that you really can connect with others. Um, you think that a story is just mundane. Oh man, you know what? One game we were walking out the locker room and all the cleats were on the cement and concrete. Then we got onto the grass and got quiet. And then the light that came from the heavens and the fans. Mm. And that happened to me so many times that if a fan didn't respond to that, I wouldn't tell that story except fans respond to that. It's because what you think is like, whatever, mundane, it connects with others. And just that's just one example of the many things that may occur in your life, may occur in my life, that broadcasting has made me realize is a part of our connection. Just those experiences, things that you went through that I haven't ever attained or went through. And vice versa, like mm-hmm. to flip the script on someone and just take them places they've never been. That's broadcasting to me. And at the highest level, it's when you get them energized, you get them engaged, you get uh-huh. them to be fanatics, which obviously fan comes from like being a fanatic, like they're all into what you think about X. And that's a power. And it's a two-way power because you feed off of their energy. You feed off of their responses. You respect the wisdom of the crowd and you respect that fans who also have a take and also have a different Mm -hmm. opinion and bring intel. And you're like in this constant transmission of energy and communication. So broadcasting is a beast, man. You can make the entire crowd, like right now, there's a game at SoFi Stadium as we're talking about this, I shouldn't timestamp this, oh, yeah. but I'm going to talk about it. Um, and if you ball out... Sorry to make sorry to distract you. You should be watching that game. <laughs> I know, right. Look at me. Not doing my job. I'm watching. Uh, but here we go. Um, in those moments, you could be... Ah, you catch the ball. Ah, you get a sack. Ah, like, literally, everyone is sitting there sipping beers, eating popcorn, talking about, oh, man, what are they doing out there? You make a play. Ah, in broadcasting... You got that same power. You drop a take. You make people think. You become interesting to a point where they're like, I didn't think about it like that. Or I didn't experience it like that. Hey, that was fresh. Um, You all of a sudden take them to a different place. And they're like, oh. And that's the response you can get out of broadcasting. So it's just really that exchange, man. And broadcasting takes me to that place in a different way, just like football. 
So first off, would you have any Super Bowl predictions? Like, do you, who do you think is going to take it? Uh, I said before the season, Tampa Bay and Buffalo. I'm not wrong because they're still alive. So <laughs> let's just stick to the script. And hopefully it's Buffalo versus Tampa and Buffalo wins that game. Oh, wow. That'd be actually an amazing Super Bowl. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, what, what inspired you to next to go write this book, Never Shut Up? Oh, man. Um, the essence that we all possess, uh, whatever that may look like for you, Never Shut Up is about your essence and you telling the world exactly what that essence is. It's not about you literally talking all the damn time everywhere you go. It's not literally about you always got to show up and show out. It's about you constantly working on showing the world who you really are, what your truest desires and deepest desires are. So never shut up in terms of that pursuit because this world will try to dictate terms. This world will tell you who they think you are or who they think you will be. But you got to tell this world who you really are and Mm -hmm. never shut up in that process. So um, for me, it was just, you know, autobiographical, biographical in terms of um, me really showing the world my experiences and how it doesn't always add up, but it still can add up for you, how success is not linear. Uh, For me, never shut up is just making sure that everyone out there tells their story to this world because the world is certainly ready to tell you its story. Well, what would you want somebody to take from this book or what lesson would you want somebody to take from this book? Um, you know, someone who's, you know, aspiring to do something greater in life or, you know, maybe struggling with something. Is there a lesson in this book that you really think that they should take with them? Um, the greatest lesson is that you are and, and anything that you want, you are capable of it. You are equipped for it. Um, you are in possession of the power necessary. Now, the process, the work, the hardest thing about anything is discipline to stay according Mm -hmm. to that plan. Uh, We all know, like whatever you're going to think of, think about what you want to do and what you want to be in this world. We all know, like you can design Mm -hmm. an easier game plan to achievement than actually sticking to that same game plan of achievement. Like, you know, football, all right, work out, be strong, be fast. Like we know the things Now, work on those things. And no matter what your level of capability is, did you maximize that? And also, it's not going to work for everybody. Like, since you got a plan, since you got a passion, doesn't mean it's going to turn out and produce itself for you. But you still got to go in pursuit of that. And that's what you're equipped Mm -hmm. to do, go in pursuit of that. So that's what I am. I'm just a a person that realizes that, okay, I could play football. I realize that. Um, I could talk a little bit. I realize that. I can't draw a lick. I realize that. Um, There are many things I can't do, but the few things I can do, let me make sure I hone my focus in on those things and try to make those things realize. So the book is for anybody out there that has a purpose, that has a passion, that has a plan, that now you can produce that if you can have that same discipline to make it happen. When you were writing this book, did it feel like a, a form of therapy? Was it kind of healing about your past as you're like writing out about, you know, your life kind of bringing it all together? It was therapeutic um, to reflect, like to be here now outside of the pain of that experience, outside of the pleasure of those experiences 
and just look at them mm-hmm. kind of from an outsider perspective, even though I had lived through them. It's kind of like broadcasting. Yeah, like, yeah it's like, mm-hmm. wait a minute, I'm watching this game. I'm talking about this game. I played the game before. I could talk about my game, whatever it may be. <laughs> Damn it, it ain't hit me the same, but wow, I could talk about it and still feel some of those emotions. So I think the therapy it was like was, you're watching your own tape of a past game. Yeah, that's what it felt like. And it was like, wow, I did that. Wow, I'm going to tell the world I did that. And it was just so many of those <laughs> countless experiences that I got to respect. And um, they all add up. Like, I don't know what they always add up to, but they all add uh-huh. up. And success is not linear. So you got to let it all add up and see where it goes. But for me, um, thankfully, it added up to the things I intentionally designed. Well, I think everyone should go out and buy this book and read this book and learn a lesson from it. And I think that before I let you go, is there, is there a story that you wrote about in your book that, you know, comes to mind right now that you might want to share, um, whether it would be something where you were reading your manual or something that, uh, you went down the wrong path. Wow. Uh, um, <laughs> You know what's interesting? Uh, I, I just tell you how things can be unintended consequences. Uh, mm-hmm. How things can come at you and you may read them wrong initially and they could turn out to be the best thing for you, those blessings in disguise. Uh, one of the unintended consequences of my knee issues was the fact that I started to look at myself more than just a football player because I started to see football evaporate before my very eyes. I started to see it go away from me where I felt like I had such a close connection and response from football. So when you go through struggle Mm -hmm. in anything in this world, it starts to one, challenge you in keeping the grip on what you're holding on to, but more importantly, look at what else is around you that you can borrow from or may have passion for. So in case of that struggle, you have other things in turn of what you can be. For me, that was academics. Like I always was a good student, but I never thought that I had to prioritize academics as much as mm-hmm. once the injury started to happen to me in football that I needed to. And that's a that's really a, a, a tale for many athletes out there that they need to understand that don't wait till the game is behind you. Don't wait till the game mm-hmm. is looking like it's over. Don't wait till the game starts to flash you with some signs of issue. Don't wait till the game starts to put the check engine light on before you start to realize there's more to you than just than sports, more to you than just being a player. And I think that's what usually occurs. And thankfully for me, I guess I had that realization that moment when I was young that, whoa, 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 Mm -hmm. this is going to come and this is going to go no matter how great it is. Um, I'm going to be retired Mm -hmm. at a young age in my 30s if I'm lucky. And then what? So I think the experience of me having issues in high school and me going to a college where the issue was, will I get noticed? Will I get drafted? Mm -hmm. Will I make it to the next level? Um, And I also could even look at my NFL experience. I wasn't a Hall of Famer, but um, most people would think, oh, well, if you're going to get a TV job, especially back then, you got to be a Hall of Famer. We didn't have the internet and we didn't have podcasts and everything. So they only took mm-hmm. the cream of the crop. But here I go, you know, all pro, pro bowler, but not Hall of Famer. Here I go skipping the line once again because of my, 
my passion and my process and my discipline. So these are not special skills that I possess. These are special skills that successful people borrow. So if you want to be successful in anything, just borrow those skills and borrow those attributes and let it add up. Let it add up wherever it goes. Marcel, it's such an inspiring conversation and you had an incredible life so far and can't wait to get more people to read that book. Everyone should read Never Shut Up. It uh, definitely helped me in kind of going through some identity crisis I have as well. And sure. I really appreciate the time you took to listen to me and talk and spend time with us here. Oh, so appreciated, man. You said identity crisis, man. Uh, I'll leave you with this. Um, the most important thing, if I had to put it on paper that people need to understand before anything in this world is their identity. Like I started off by saying, it's important to know who you are, but as my grandmother told me, it's more important to know who you're not. So let's start there. Mm -hmm. If you're having a conflict of issues and going through an identity crisis, whatever it may be, because certainly I know I raised my hand in terms of what will this all become? That identity issue, man, make sure before you leave the house the next time, whoever you are out there, to simply know who you are and more importantly, who you're not. That's a starting point. Yeah, I thought what was beautiful, what you said was how these two different worlds or two different lives that you admired and loved could actually live in synastry with each other. They didn't have to be two separate roads, the teacher and the football player, the broadcaster and the football player. They could be two. They could be one and the same. You could help people and you can be the athlete at the same time. And you can find you, you've now found your own way to help people through motivational speaking, through writing, through broadcasting and through, you know, reaching other people out there. Yep. That's my Wileyism, man. Mark Twain said it best. If you look at my mental scoreboard, which I think that is a healthy scoreboard, but for you, your scoreboard should look as Mark Twain once said it. Life is a competition between you and yourself. That's the score you need to keep. Stop having home and visitors. Stop having me and the homies. Stop having me and successful people on Instagram. Like you and yourself. Keep score of that, man. Now you're starting to really compete. Amazing, man. Thank you. And let's talk soon. Let's do it, brother. Appreciate it so much, man. Have a good one. All Take right. care. Gia.